make sure that uh, that program doesn't contain controversial subjects and uh, you're not impolite to people. Oh, definitely not, Dad. You know me. I'm never, <laughs> ever controversial or yeah, impolite. Yeah, yeah, okay. Welcome to Conversations with your lovable, never pisses anyone off, never been banned from Facebook or YouTube, never been sabotaged or censored for politely expressing a difference of opinion, ex-Muslim host Ina, keeping it non-controversial. Welcome to episode 37. I have journalist Evan Balgord here with me today, someone who's been covering the far-right, alt-right, and anti-Muslim movements in Canada for the past year. He does very important work in this time, especially when I think not enough people are covering it or giving it the attention that it needs. So thank you for being here, Evan. Thank you very much for having me and uh, sharing your audience. I quite love your podcast. Oh, thanks. It's been so interesting getting to know you on uh, Twitter because we sort of cover like a similar sort of scene, but on different levels. You know, so you track alt-right anti-Muslim movements and I kind of... Uh, pay attention to those movements, but the overlaps within the atheist scene with those movements. So I'm usually like watching for the right-wing professors and things like that that are bringing these talking points and mainstreamizing them. And you're actually on the ground in protests with, you know, these far-right groups and uh, doing actually some very dangerous things. Sure. And there's there's a lot of overlap between the, the two things that we cover. You kind of cover the, the academic scene and the talking heads. And uh, we often see how the two groups will will play off each other, like the the anti-Muslim or far right groups will will use the talking points of the academics or uh, or pundits that you follow, mm-hmm. and then often there will also be events where they overlap, where they'll want to give a panel or or a talk or something, and then anti-fascist and anti-racist activists might want to shut it down, or some of these uh, uh, extreme Muslim groups or individuals uh, might actually end up being an, like audience members at some of those conversations. There's a lot of overlap between what we do. Yeah, definitely. Um, So, you know, so can you just like tell me a bit more about your adventures in this world? Like what what's it like to be on the ground at these protests? What's your experience with Antifa like? I mean, that's been a big thing that everyone's talking about nowadays. What do you make of people's perceptions of it versus what you see on the ground? Sure. So, I mean, let me give an example of kind of what happens when I go to one of these rallies or demonstrations. So, there will be a coalition of anti-Muslim groups. There's usually at least a half dozen in any given city when there's going to be a large event. And they'll be putting on something like uh, an event to oppose Motion M103, which was the uh, anti-Islamophobia motion that uh, went through our House of Commons here. Mm-hmm. So they'll, they'll show up uh, to demonstrate against M103 and a bunch of uh, anti-racist and anti-fascist groups uh, will show up to counter demonstrate them, and there will be you know warring demonstrations in a in a public space. So you'll show up, and uh, when you first arrive at uh, let's say Nathan Phillips Square in Toronto, the two groups will be there somewhat in small numbers, and usually some uh, some clashes will break out. There will be some violence, um, and then the police will move in, separate the two groups, which will yell and shout at each other. The uh, the anti racist and anti fascists will not allow the anti Muslim groups to march, for example, they might block off any possible places they could leave the square from. And then they'll they'll shout at each other for a while and uh, eventually everybody goes home. 
Um, when it comes to the, the anti-fascist and anti-racist, they're doing this because um, they want to demonstrate to the communities that are being targeted, particularly the Muslim community, that uh, there are people that have their back here in Canada, and Canada doesn't welcome this kind of mm-hmm. uh, racism. Uh, and uh, they'll try to make sure that uh, the anti-Muslim groups can't more widely spread their message. They'll try to contain them to the public square where they are, not let them go further, and they'll try to shout over them as they're shouting their talking points and uh, and stuff like that. So that's generally the scene that I see when I when I walk into these things. So when you talk about violence, like what do you mean exactly? What kind of violence is it? Like serious stuff or? Uh, it it ranges. Um, uh, in my experience, generally the the more equal the sides are in numbers, uh, the greater uh, likelihood that there will be violence. Or the smaller the thing is altogether, um, the more likely there will be violence. Oh, um, really? So smaller demonstrations, there's more likely violence at those? Yeah, uh, I kind of attribute that to two things. Um, the first would be that when the the demonstrations are smaller, it's because all the all the real diehards are out. Uh, and these are the people who show up to every single event and they're a bit more confrontational. I'd also say when the groups are smaller, the police often don't step in at the appropriate moment. They'll, they'll wait too long to separate the two groups or whatever, and, uh, and there'll be no separations between them. So they'll uh, be egging each other on, yelling at each other, and then pushing and shoving. And then sometimes more than that, uh, I saw at one of the rallies in the beginning, uh, a member of one of the anti-Muslim uh, groups uh, and a former Proud Boy in Toronto who was later kicked out ran up and gave a, a running shove to somebody that kind of kicked off one of the fights. Uh, and I have seen people get, get fairly injured at these things. I saw one uh, anti-fascist activist uh, who was also pushed pretty hard not long after that uh, first push I just mentioned, uh, who who cracked her head on um, like a concrete thing in the square and was, uh, I understand she was hospitalized. Wow. Wow. And so do you think that uh, the, like I heard you say, you did this podcast for Canada land uh, recently uh, called the rise of the right, which was, mm-hmm. which was great and super informative and I'll link to it so everyone can listen to it. But you talked about how usually it's the people on the anti-Muslim alt-right movement side that come prepared for a fight. You said something like that, if I remember correctly. Yeah. So there have been like uh, monthly demonstrations and sometimes even more frequently. And uh, we've increasingly seen people show up with uh, uh, metal flagpoles, uh, body armor, helmets, etc. Um, and uh, conversely, the anti-fascist, anti-racist activists will show up with like, um, you know, wooden flagpoles and stuff. But generally, it's been the, uh, the anti-Muslim groups, members of them that have started the violence, at least in Toronto. Um, I can say that fairly definitively because I've been at most of these rallies and I've reviewed video footage of all of the uh, scuffles that have broken out. And uh, about three quarters of the violence, at least in Toronto, has been started by members of the anti-Muslim groups rather than by anti-fascist and anti-racist activists. Not to say that they never participate in violence, but uh, they are less frequently the instigators of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, according to some of the coverage that you see, that's definitely not what I'd think because you hear about Antifa being, like, you know, violent all the time. Absolutely. And you see that narrative a lot in the uh, in the United States where uh, people are often saying that it's 
the anti-fascists starting the the violence and whatnot. But I mean, we saw in Charlottesville, the so-called alt-right white supremacists showed up uh, really looking and ready for violence. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think if anybody did take the time to drill down and look at uh, all the available video footage of every scuffle and, and break it down, um, I, I doubt it's as one-sided as uh, as it has often been mm-hmm. reported and uh, and reinforced. Because you hear the similar thing in Toronto. I'll talk to people and they'll say either the violence is equivalent or it's the anti-fascist starting it every time. And mm-hmm. I usually have to have to correct people. So while I can only say definitively what I know from Toronto, uh, I think my experience there would suggest that anywhere else that you see the violence as well, you really got to take a critical look at, mm-hmm. uh, at what's happening. Well, there was that video that surfaced after Charlottesville about, a, uh, you know, of a guy who shot at someone yep. and the cops were nearby or something and did nothing, something like that. Right. I understand um, it was reported. I didn't have time to uh, to really delve deep into it, but I saw reported a few places that he was actually uh, someone in a, of a leadership position in the KKK, um, and he shouted out um, "Hey N word" uh, before he uh, fired his gun a couple times into a crowd and out of person, and uh, it didn't look like anybody actually got shot. Thank mm-hmm. God. But yeah, I mean, you can also see that the police were like, uh, I think they're actually in the frame of that video as well, like in the far, far left and didn't respond to it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, constantly I see whatever the far right is doing always downplayed, even in the atheist scene itself, like the bigger, more popular leaders of the movement, people like Michael Shermer. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they will they will say things like, you know, ignore them or they will compare Antifa and the Nazis and paint it as something equivalent. So he's saying to to ignore when when like the alt-right or the so-called alt-right like demonstrates and do, does things like that and they won't have any oxygen and they'll just go away. Is that kind of the argument they put forward? I guess so. I mean, he tweeted something vague like that, but it was after Charlottesville that he tweeted that. So, I mean, t- I was appalled. Well, I've seen that narrative uh, from pundits and talking heads a lot, even here in Canada, arguing that, uh, you know, if you ignore these racists holding public demonstrations, that they'll go away. I've never seen anybody offer any evidence to back up that viewpoint. Instead, like conversely, when you allow um, racists and stuff to organize in public, they there's there's plenty of historical examples of how that allows them to recruit and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And there's also plenty of historical examples going back every time that a, a racist fascist street movement has uh, has grown. Um, they are almost always confronted by anti-fascist activists, be it in Europe, be it in the United States, be it in Canada. There's a long history of this. There was a resurgence in the 30s. There was a post-war period. There was the 60s. Then there was the 80s and the 90s. And these movements all kind of popped up and then were confronted by anti-fascist, anti-racist activists. And every time, at least in all the examples historically that I've looked at, the anti-fascist and anti-racist activists directly confronting them on the streets uh, played a key role in defeating um, these fascist and racist organizations. Um, And I also think it's interesting to note that in the past, historically, it was much more violent, way more violent. And now you, you have people, you know, pearl clutching and whatnot about the violence today. Mm. It, it pales. I don't want to excuse violence. I find it. I find I abhor violence, but yeah, uh, it's it's nothing compared to what we've seen in the past. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I obviously I, I abhor violence too, and I don't ex- accept it in any way. I don't want to excuse it, even when it's coming from the left. But what I what really frustrates me is this hyper exaggeration, even from people who claim to be like centrists or you know, uh, even leftists themselves. They claim to be leftists, but they're always downplaying stuff on the far right and saying it's not that bad. It's just fringe. It's this, and then exaggerating every like one incident from the left and i'm just so sick and tired of that yeah let's break out something though for a second i mean anti-fascist groups coalitions etc there it's an autonomous movement comprising dozens of groups um it's organized more in cells than any kind of big umbrella organization that's what i understand from the states i know that for sure in canada Mm -hmm. um and, and not all groups agree on, like, what tactics to use. I mean, the tactics range from the black bloc tactics, which everybody uh, in the center kind of takes offense at, which would be the, the violence, property damage, et cetera, mm-hmm. right up to, like, prayer circles. And, like, there's everything in between. So when people are talking about, like, Antifa, um, they're frequently using that term to refer to groups using uh, black bloc yeah. or, or violent or militant tactics when that's just a subset of the anti-fascist movement. Yeah. Um, they would it's argue, just something that though, bugs me a little bit. <laughs> for sure. But just to play as well, do I even want to play the oh, devil's, devil's advocate for sure? Like, I um, have criticisms too. Let's, let's explore it out. But no, so they would say the same for alt right as a catch all term, right? They say that the violent, crazy Nazis are just a subset. Sure. Well, I, I think of it as proportionality, right? All these arguments kind of come down to proportionality in a weird way. What proportion of the alt right? Uh, is at least white nationalists. That'd be like all of them, right? <laughs> and then most of them are worse. Most of them are white supremacists or or full-blown, uh, and then some of them are, are full-blown neo-Nazis. But at its very most benign, the alt-right is a white nationalist movement that seeks to implement discriminatory and racist policies um, in order to benefit their people, white people, or, mm-hmm. or the American you know, what they see as the stereotypical American. On the flip side, the anti-fascist and anti-racist, if you take a big step back, their their goal, they all have their own politics and ideologies. There's communists, there's socialists, there's anarchists, there's labor, et cetera, et cetera. But their one defining goal is just stopping the other side from from accumulating more political power or engaging in violence or in implementing discriminatory policies. So if you just take a step back and want to characterize the two sides as something, I mean, one side is fighting for discrimination and the other side is fighting against it. Mm-hmm. And people often equate them, which is infuriating. Yeah, it's, it's, it's entirely a false equivalency. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, after Charlottesville, there was another big rally planned, right? I forget where now, but there was what, I don't know, 15,000 people that showed up. I think it was, was it Boston? I thought the big next thing I saw was Berkeley, but to be fair, I've been doing a lot of writing lately and haven't followed enough American news. Oh, okay. So, yeah, so there was like something like 15,000 people that showed up to protest against it versus like 100 white supremacists that were there. Oh, this was, oh, was this the Boston thing where they called it a free speech thing and then they were all hiding inside of a gazebo? Yes, this is it. Yeah. Yes, I did see that. Um, and, we saw actually something really similar happen in Vancouver following the, yeah, the Charlottesville event. Yeah, I remember event. hearing about that, yeah. 
there was a really small um, organization. Uh, There's a really small, sorry, uh, rally that was going to be uh, uh, anti-immigration racist rally that was going to be put on by uh, by the Worldwide Coalition Against Islam and the Cultural Action Party, both of which have members in leadership positions which are full-blown white supremacists, anti-Semitic. The whole the whole nine yards of you know how you identify somebody as a neo-Nazi. Mm-hmm. Uh, 4,000 people showed up in Vancouver, took up the space. Um, the racist groups canceled their demonstration, uh, and it was a, a complete nonviolent victory. Uh, something That's similar happened. Something similar, I understand, happened in Boston. I understand that there still were some scuffles and stuff that broke out, but compared to the other demonstrations and counter demonstrations it was largely nonviolent. yeah that's what i don't remember really hearing about the scuffles there might have been i mean with that many people but mostly it was completely nonviolent, from what i recall yeah i only saw one news story about how um uh i believe it was a woman from black lives matter actually shielded uh, a racist like with their body from from other demonstrators that uh, that did want to do them harm and, and made sure they escorted them out uh safely yeah, I do remember. I do remember reading something about that. Now that you mention it, actually, and that's amazing too, because the the things that are said about Black Lives Matter are also trying to equate them with white supremacists, which is ludicrous. Yeah, they're actually they're frequently held up as an example of like the worst and most violent anti-fascist group and whatnot. Um, and you know, I, I don't know the truth of that. I suspect, like with any other coalition of groups and whatever, that it would depend, you know, chapter to chapter, how extreme any given chapter of BLM is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I think there there are fair there are some fair criticisms, of course, of their tactics or whatever. But as a whole, to not understand why that movement exists and to equate it with a white supremacy movement is is just beyond ridiculous. Absolutely. The, the other thing when we talk about kind of like black block tactics and, and the scuffles and, that broke out, I mean, I mentioned earlier that when the groups are smaller and it's the diehards that come out, that, that there's more potential for violence. Mm-hmm. Um, in Toronto, uh, following the, the uh, election of, of Trump, there was a women's march that saw tens of thousands of people take to the street um, in a direct you know, repudiation of, mm-hmm. of Trump. Uh, following that, there were monthly anti-Muslim demonstrations at Toronto City Hall, and eventually the moderates and the liberals, I guess, lost interest or weren't aware it was happening or whatever. And it was left to the people who like come out to every single one of these things to oppose them. Those are the, you know, the the anti-fascist activists, the the socialists, the communists, the et cetera, et cetera. And, and so, in all of our criticisms of the more militant tactics that some of these groups use, et cetera, I think it also bears noting that. Um, they're the ones actually going out there and doing the work, even when the moderates and the nonviolent folks, et cetera, forget it's happening. They're the ones that show up every time. So in any criticism that we have of, of their tactics, and I, I still, like, I mean, I'm critical of, of some of it, uh, I do think it's be- it's worth noting that they're the ones that actually carry the torch and show up mm. every time to, to combat the racists and to try to demonstrate to targeted communities that... Uh, that they have their back. Right, right. And, uh, you know, if mo- if moderates and liberals want less of their tactics, then they've got to start showing up more. And, you know, exactly. that's, that's kind of the criticism that I have of, you know, moderate Muslims as well, uh, where they, so- they, they sort of in our community, I feel, do not do enough 
to tackle radicalization within the community. Of course, it's not like how the far right paints it and that no Muslims are moderate and there's some secret conspiracy for a Sharia takeover. But the moderates could be louder. And and I I feel the same way about this issue. So, I mean, I'm in a weird um, position here being an ex-Muslim and a liberal who absolutely does not come at this uh, criticism of Islam issue with, you know, bitter hatred, but more like, more as any secular person would who doesn't like conservatism, who who opposes conservatism in their own community. Well, one thing that uh, uh, organizers in the Muslim community shared with me was that uh, very frequently they try to deal with these issues with these issues within their. I mean, you'll know better than I will, so I'll just tell you what I've been told. Mm. They say that frequently they try to deal with these issues within their own community. They try to uh, sanction or, or or censor speakers that they know are going to say awful anti-Semitic stuff or whatever, or try not to give them a platform or remove them as soon as they hear something or. Or when it comes to uh, issues of radicalization, they very frequently cooperate with uh, with the police and mm-hmm. with CSIS, and it's just never made a, into a media issue. CSIS That's doesn't true. publicize how many uh, Muslims come to them yeah. to report stuff and help out. So the rest of Canada and I guess the rest of the world kind of gets this impression that they aren't speaking out about radicalization and radicals in their midst when instead they're kind of trying to do it quietly without drawing too much media attention because well, they're already heavily scrutinized by the media and, and criticized by, by far-right pundits and stuff like that, and they just don't want to draw any more, um, I guess, negative attention. Uh, yeah, at time well, that and, and even threat. when they're not doing anything that's criticism-worthy, there are fake stories being put out. Oh, my uh, gosh. You know? Yeah. So, Did you see the one about the Texas mosque? Yes, that was a guy from Toronto, right, it, who's never been to Texas. It was. I mean, uh, the funny thing is uh, that imam, Imam Hindi, uh, so I guess, I guess for your listeners, uh, there was a fake news story going on about how, uh, there was some, uh, a mosque in Texas that wasn't allowing in, I guess, Christians and Jews or something like that to, to take care of them during the hurricane. And they used a photo of an imam here from Toronto. Uh, and, uh, the funny thing is that, you know, he had like 200 Twitter followers before this whole thing. And then he, uh, he just basically wrote a tweet saying like, I've never been to Texas. Yeah. And now he has like thousands of Twitter followers. He was retweeted by J.K. Rowling and a bunch of other people. And it was uh, it was just a great and funny repudiation of, of fake news. But what I don't understand what they hope to achieve. Like, don't they know that with the Internet soon they'll be found out to be spreading fake stories? Or do they not care? They just want to cause panic and chaos in the moment? They have like a disclaimer on their site that says like, oh, this is satire. But if like people take it seriously, like, oh, we don't mind or like some bullshit like that. Um, and, and yeah, this is kind of how like fake news stories generate and spread. You put it up someplace where you'd have like plausible deniability to say it was satire and then other people report it as fact. And all of a sudden, like there's a whole media cycle built around horseshit. Yeah. And then other people pick it up. People like Paul Joseph Watson from Infowars picks up random shit that's fake or, you know, and then it just continues to spread. I'm not saying that he tweeted this. I don't know. He might have, but he's well, yeah, done I mean, things like that a lot of if, times. If something can infiltrate into uh, Infowars, you know, it, it's, it's reasonable to expect that sooner or later the president will say it (laughs) oh that's such a sad sentence but it's true it's true um but going back to you know the fact that yes muslims do definitely do a a lot more than uh people people talk about in the media especially you know after uh the manchester attacks 
There was a lot of uh, action and marches and things like that. And people were still complaining that the moderate Muslims don't stand up. And when they do stand up, they get like these racist uh, slurs thrown at them. And still, you know, people screaming that we don't want your Sharia law, whether they're trying to stand in solidarity with the victims or whatever they're doing. They're accused of spreading Sharia law. But at the same time, there are things like, um, you know, so so I wrote a children's book that was about uh, a gay uncle set in Pakistan. And I deliberately did not mention religion. And it was picked up by some of the school boards and read read out at assemblies for Pink Day. And then there was this huge outrage, even like school trustees that were Muslim were getting involved. ISNA, Islamic Society of North America, wrote this piece, this blog post that said, you know, the school boards bullied the parents into having to teach their kids about homosexuality. And, you know, people framed it as some Islamophobic attack. And this is a misrepresentation of our culture. People wanted to sue schools. So, I mean, there are things like that that are, the community is pretty bad at. When, whenever someone's trying to take a step forward and, you know, do something more inclusive, they're shut down. What do you think are like, some positive solutions to that? Like, what, what, what should the community um, be doing, do you think? Well, I think that when a community has more conservative voices representing it, um, then the liberal voices and the moderate voices will be drowned out. So we're outnumbered anyways. But what doesn't help at all is when the, the school boards will side with the Muslim right on certain things. So when they say, oh, well, you know, teaching about inclusivity and anti-homophobia is Islamophobic, then the school board backs off and says, okay, okay, we won't touch this. It completely works with their updated, you know, sex ed curriculum, which also was a problem. Yeah. Um, well, one thing that I've seen, and I, I want to say quickly, though, I'm excluding the National Council of Canadian Muslims from this, but I have heard that uh, other Muslim organizations in Canada are still kind of like a, a quote, like an old boys club where it's, uh, it's first kind of generation immigrants. It's very much organized and done in the style of of where they came from very patriarchal Mm -hmm. so i'm wondering if maybe this is maybe this is a generational thing maybe when when the next generation kind of gets into leadership roles in the community and in its institutions and and more women get there that that maybe some of this will get better it undoubtedly will and you also see like you know more and more people fighting for lgbt rights and women's rights and things like that from within the community but there's still some like institutionalized things that it's hard to question those like segregation in mosques. And now they've become a far right issue because they're sort of hijacked by people who hate Muslims to use as a sledgehammer against Muslims. So people from within who actually want to challenge these things are now silenced. Yes. I see, though, when people are like saying that, uh, that uh, Islam, all Islam or all Muslims are, are, um, you know, like anti-female or misogynistic or whatever. Mm. I mean, those criticisms, the people that I see it coming from, I don't see them trying to empower or support yeah. you know, Muslim women. I see them using it to say, like, if you let the Muslims take over and impose Sharia law, our white women will have to be hijabis. <laughs> exactly. So they never offer solutions. Uh, their goal isn't to they don't really care about Muslim women, even though they pretend to. 
And then there's so many like ex-Muslims and reformist Muslims that get taken in by that. And because there's such great rewards for um, sort of catering to that audience, being the whistleblower, like as you see this ex-Muslim Sandra Solomon has become, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, and then the anti-Muslim groups and whatnot will will use her as as a token. They'll point to her and be like, we can't be, you know, you call us anti-Muslim, but we're really just anti-Islam. Of course we can't be racist. Look, there's a Muslim woman. Yeah, an ex-Muslim woman. Yeah, sure. I mean, but you can't, people have to recognize that being of a group doesn't shield you from accusations of bigotry towards that group. There's actual Muslims that aren't even ex-Muslims that can be bigoted towards Muslims, you know? So I, I don't, people have to stop letting that be an acceptable excuse that, oh, look, we're not bigoted because we have this one token person or these two token people. Absolutely. Maybe now's a good time to talk about the term ex-Muslim that you even used to describe yourself, because I find it a very odd term. Mm, yeah, we had we had this discussion briefly on Twitter. So so tell me, why do you find it odd? I'm starting to find, to have issues myself with the movement just because of the kinds of people that I see representing it and what they are saying and who they are aligning with. And now it's gotten to the point where post Charlottesville, some of the takes have been like, you know, Islam is worse than Nazism and respected ex-Muslims are backing this up. Like, I don't know what's happening anymore. When it comes to the term ex-Muslim, and and please correct me and jump in at any point if you think I'm getting something wrong here, but I think it's understood in common parlance that uh, the people understand Muslim to be a racial category. I mean, the racists will say, you know, Muslims isn't a race or Islam isn't a race or whatever, Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. and use that as an excuse to be racist. But I think all of us kind of understand Muslim to be, you know, an identifiable group and to some degree like a racial category. Like we understand it that way. So... On its face, I mean, I think the term ex-Muslim is a little odd because um, what individuals like yourself are doing with real liberal criticisms of, of you know, conservative interpretations of Islam, you're criticizing Islam, the religion, not not the people. And I kind of see what you're doing, your role is, is doing it on behalf of, of Muslims. So to say ex-Muslim is a little weird because it's saying, like, I'm no longer part of this, you know, category of people or this community that you're still very, like, involved in and trying Mm. to help out with. So that's why it's a little weird to me just on its face. Mm. I can understand that because I definitely do see myself as part of the community. But I also um, want to express and normalize my lack of belief. You know, something which was quite noble, like quite noble seeming to me, uh, even a year ago, because of the way that uh, apostasy is perceived in the Islamic world and how many people are oppressed and silenced just for having doubts killed even uh, in Muslim countries. Like I've lived in Saudi Arabia, I've lived in Pakistan, I know what that fear is like. And I feel like that's why uh, sort of using this defiant term that still has the word Muslim but puts X in front of it, was important, you know, just to normalize apostasy. Sure, but now the term seems to be kind of getting co-opted and yes. it kind of seems to be, well, I'll compare it to to another term that uh, that is quite awful and I don't like, but uh, another term, you know, the self-hating Jew implying, uh, <laughs> oh. you know, the anti-Semitic Jew. Um 
so, I mean, I don't want to say there's equivalency between the two terms, but I kind of see the term ex-Muslim going in that direction based on the people that have co-opted it and use it to label themselves. Hmm. Okay. Uh, and I'm concerned that it's starting to get loaded with that kind of meaning. So there have been in the past people that sort of pretend to be liberal from the Muslim community, but really are conservative Muslims when you get down to it. And Western liberal people are not able to see that uh, conservative side of them. And they have used that talking point to discredit anyone doubting Islam or, you know, just joking about it, just like any secular Western person should have the right to do about the religion that they were born into. Mm-hmm. But now there are, yes, ex-Muslims who are sadly proving those types of critics Right, you know, most famously there have been like this guy called C.J. Whirlman who who does equate the term ex-Muslim with self-hating Jew and he's used horrible, horrible terms like um, paid brown face, porch oh, monkey to to describe uh, critics of Islam that yeah. were born I don't, I, don't, I don't want to equate those two terms. I really don't. I uh I just see it kind of getting loaded with that. And I don't, I also don't mean to call anybody who uses the term to describe themselves as ex-Muslim to be a self-hating Muslim, obviously. It just, no, but I see the term seems to be trending in that direction. Okay. So, so yeah, there are like a lot of these Kekistan Pepe type of ex-Muslims coming into the scene and it's starting to be more and more associated with people, at least from the atheist scene. I don't know if you're, familiar with people like Dave Rubin, people who he will promote. And so, so yes, I understand your concerns and how that separation from the community may look to someone on the outside. But I've also seen like conservative Muslims try to discredit ex-Muslims who are just expressing doubt and no hate, um, you know, with, with, with that self-hating Jew thing. So it's confusing to me. And and it's getting worse and worse. Like, I don't know how familiar you are with the whole Kekistani meme. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, my limit of uh, what, like, I've seen the flag being flown at anti-Muslim demonstrations by kind of alt-righty, trolly kind of people. Yeah. And I know, I know it's related to... Uh, to kind of like the alt-right and troll culture. But beyond that, I've never looked too much into the Kekistan thing. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, they claim that it was like a parody of the alt-right, but it got so quickly co-opted by the alt-right and used by, you know, proud neo-Nazis that it's a very unsuccessful parody if they intended to make fun of Nazis. They did a poor job by taking a Nazi flag and just changing the color on it and um, using a oh, bunch of Pepe symbols and making silly jokes. And we see like the how how good the alt-right and the white nationalists and supremacist stuff are at co-opting things almost immediately. Exactly. And also this whole idea that it's just a joke. I mean, there's a bunch of alt-right people that say that about everything, right? Their thing is plausible deniability. So everything is just a joke. And why are you, you idiot normies, taking it seriously? You know what I mean? But it's not really a joke. It's like, well, they're in the alt-right movement. A lot of them might be pretty, you know, internet savvy, part of the like the Chan cultures, etc., like there's also a ton of people in the so-called alt-right white nationalist white supremacist movement that don't get the irony. Like they saw 4chan try to make like the okay symbol like 
supposed to mean white supremacy, but then make fun of the media for thinking it meant yeah. white supremacy, etc. That went right over their fucking heads, and they started just using it as a white supremacy. Like, right. But so you see, when actual white supremacists are using the OK symbol as a white supremacy indicator, then, then they get the plausible deniability, too. They do. But it's also not so funny that the media is buying into it because actual white supremacists are using it, just like the milk cup and, you know, whatever else they, they try to use. Yeah. So when, when it comes to like online and arguments about satire, you just don't get it and stuff like that. No, I, I just dismiss all that. It's it's very simple. Like if, if you're making some kind of meme or, or cultural thing to say like, oh, this is going to make us look racist, but it's all a joke. Yeah. No, no, you're, you're just racist. Like, the, yeah. no, <laughs> like I've, I've had enough of all, all the satire and, and stuff like that. It's not funny. Yeah. Um, and, and really like what you're doing is it's, it's, it's like having a, a double or a triple agent. Like, you, you know what you're really trying to do. And the people that pick up and start using the simpler, whatever, all the nuance is lost on them. And they're really just using it as a racist thing to signal other racists. So, yeah, no, I, don't, I have no time for the for the satire argument. Yeah. So now so now because of the Internet, giving people more and more access to each other and these memes spreading further and further, there are some very, very angry uh, young people in Muslim countries who do have doubts about Islam but have no way of expressing it or, uh, I guess, just being free to be who they are, not believers. And they're forced to, like, fast. They're forced to pray. So this manifests in some really, really ugly feelings. But, of course, they're coming from a different climate where there's no such thing as anti-Muslim bigotry and only, only, only Muslim bigotry, you know? So, and is, is, is this one place where we see, like, the, the Muslim alt-right come out of? Yes, exactly. So you see these people who start identifying as ex-Muslim, and they have these Twitter profiles with Pepe the Frog, and they're so pro-Trump, and they love the alt-right because they hate the Muslims that are currently in control of them and oppressing them. So this is their way of lashing out, of rebelling. And, um, yeah, so then you get this whole new crop of... Kekistani ex-Muslims, right? Um, I understand the desire to act out, but like, do they really think that they have allies in, in the groups that they're taking symbols and, and cues from? I mean, it's not like the, the white nationalists and white supremacists where they're, when they're going to you know, try to take power or hurt somebody or, or implement discriminatory or racist policies. It's not like they're going to be like, oh, we're not going to take any Muslim refugees from, uh, from this country or any immigrants from any you know, non-white countries, except for the the people who have a Pepe the Frog fucking symbol <laughs> on their Twitter account. They're totally cool. Come on in. Like, what do they expect? Exactly, right? It's so short-sighted and it's so stupid. And so I've talked to some of these angry ex-Muslims before online, and I'm like, you know, what do you think you're getting out of demonizing Muslims this way and hating, hating them, like generalizing, and they're like, fuck you, bitch, cunt, you don't know what it's like, you know? They assume I, I have no experience. They don't know I'm ex-Muslim when I'm talking to them. They think I'm some, like, white, liberal, Western person. And I'm like, no, I lived in Saudi Arabia. I was forced to wear, a, you know, an abaya and... I know what it's like. I know what it's like to live with that fear. But when you become the kind of person that you hated so much, that, that what does that do? 
And then we, you see some of it actually trickle into the United States and Canada. There's this uh, this private Facebook group that somebody has shared screenshots uh, with me. The Facebook group is called Implying We Can Discuss Pan-Islamism 3, The Return of the Caliph. And uh, inside of it, it's, it's like a Muslim alt-right thing. It's like very anti-Semitic, but it's also uh, very anti-like certain countries and stuff like that. And but the way that they share their memes, share their information, write and talk, it's it's taken straight from the alt-right. And this group, uh, I understand, is is they actually posted something of like the, the demographic makeup of where people are coming from, from the group. A lot of it was Egypt, but then there are also like a fair number of like American and, uh, and Canadian members. So, you know, I'm kind of concerned that like this might actually be a new weird route to radicalization for some folks. Definitely, definitely. And I've seen actually Canadian ex-Muslims, you know, so I'm talking about these sort of anonymous Kekistani ex-Muslim accounts being really, really bad and really, really hateful. But that's seeped into some of the more prominent ex-Muslims that are backed by even more prominent ex-Muslims. And so that sort of soured the whole movement and to the point where I question if I even want to use the term because of the people that are representing it. You know, like I told you about this, Islam is worse than Nazism take uh, right after Charlottesville, after knowing how people how empowered white supremacists are to give them the legitimacy of making them better than a mainstream religion. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm not like a fan of Islam in, in any, any way at all. You know, I, I, I enjoy harsh criticisms of it and, but it's its own sort of, you know, I hate to say the word evil, but you know, my criticisms of religion are that, you know, the, the morality of it is from, too long ago to make sense now. And but it's you, like that with every Abrahamic religion. Absolutely. But you cannot compare it to fucking Nazism, right? Well, do, you, do you think it's time for a new term? Is there a, maybe a new way that you can describe yourself and other you know, liberal critics of Islam? Yeah, I've really been thinking about it, actually. Um, I, I don't know yet. I'm going to continue thinking some more, but there has to be a way for me to distinguish myself from that movement now, sadly. Um, and, you know, as my views on that become clearer and clearer, people are, you know, pissed off with me. People that used to be fans and admired my work. But, you know, it makes me feel bad because they were never in it for my principles, something that I've tried to be consistent with, but they were just in it to hear me bash Islam, and that's not what I was about. You know, so I feel sort of used. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I'm definitely not the kind to say that, you know, there's some prominent ex-Muslims that have gone on rebel media to give interviews saying that there's no space for Islam on the planet, you know, which, which is just ridiculous. You know, what? It, like, I really hate when you see it in these movements, people treat anything like a monolithic thing. Yeah, it, it's, it's just not. Absolutely um, not. And, and, and they think that when I say don't say that, like, especially right now, consider the climate. You guys exist in the West. You know what's happening. And then they're like, oh, yeah, well, what about the climate in Saudi Arabia? You know, I'm like, but clearly you cannot say the same thing with the same harshness in in every media outlet. Like you cannot go to an anti-Semitic outlet and talk about your criticisms of, you know, Judaism or, like, I can't go to Pakistan 
And even though I dislike Christianity quite a bit, I cannot go and join some like far right Islamist sort of site to air my Christian Christian criticisms because the climate is so hostile against Christians over there. And of course, I'm not comparing how Christians are treated in Pakistan to how Muslims are treated in the West. But for the West, things have gotten pretty bad. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the one thing that I see uh, held in common by a lot of people in the uh, in the far right or anti-Muslim movements or whatnot is is they are kind of blind to the context of the country that they're in. So, like, explain that out. It's like they view it as a global struggle um, for a lot of them that aren't even, you know, necessarily pro-Jewish, even anti-Semites who have been uh, pro-Zionism because they see that as, you know, the the quote unquote, you know, good guy in the Middle East in this clash of of civilizations or whatnot, because they really hate Muslims and hate Islam. Mm-hmm. They always take a look at it from a global perspective. They think Muslims are trying to take over the world, et cetera. And let's like let's not even engage with the validity or any evidence of that for a second. Let's just look at Canada. Like in Canada, things are pretty swell. I mean, as far as other places in the world and even America, like uh, as far as, uh, you know, faith communities or, or, you know, groups of people hating each other, killing each other, et cetera, Mm -hmm. uh, as awful as it is here. And that's no excuse not to fix it compared to the rest of the world. It's pretty benign. Mm hmm. Definitely. Um, and but then they look and take all, all their examples for what's happening in the rest of the world while being totally blind to the context of, you know, we are on the other side of the world where, you know, there are very good Muslim and, and Jewish organizations, et cetera, that do very good and positive things. And they're not out hugely promoting hate against each other or anything like that. You'll find like the odd isolated example. But but generally, like the communities get along well, but they Im- they're importing their hate and their justifications from elsewhere in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so true. And that's what I mean when prominent ex-Muslims will say, well, what about the global context? You know, you can't uh, you can't stop saying the truth no matter where in the world you are. Well, I think that you can certainly phrase your same points differently uh, according to the audience, right? Rebel media is not the place to go with your Islam has no place on the planet bullshit. Well, yeah, I mean, like you're looking at all like the the global awfulness and then you're saying, well, we we can't, you know, have it here or using that as justification for some really hateful stuff here. What you're at, what I think these groups are actually doing is importing some of that racial hatred that they're apparently trying to, you know, keep out of the country or whatever, like by by being so hateful and importing all the justification. I mean, they're Mm. they're really inflaming what are the like racial tensions in Canada that like don't. Yeah. Like, they exist, but you don't need to pour, you know, gasoline on them. Yeah, well, and you'll see that often um, ex-Muslims who have this sort of rage and desire to go on rebel media or, you know, won't support uh, Islamic reform movements and think that we should just argue for the eradication of the religion and deconvert everyone or whatever solution they have in mind, they come from some... Fairly uh, traumatic backgrounds. You know, they they were raised under very harsh religious parents or something, and they have experienced legitimate uh, abuse or trauma. Uh, They used to be radical. So I feel like they project that radical sort of extreme attitude into their quote-unquote secularism as well. 
You know, I don't even feel it's fully secular when you're being so non-inclusive to someone's peaceful beliefs. Yeah, and uh, as as much as what a lot of like a lot of what is happening, a lot of what they're saying and doing is awful and has terrible and, ne- and negative repercussions, I, I do think it's also possible to have empathy for these people. Of course, um, yeah, but. Uh, a lot of people don't don't make it easy for me because they'll uh, directly attack me for being the you know the cuck the cuck uh, ex Muslim. Oh jeez, yeah. Well, they haven't used those words, but you know, people have implied like I'm doing takia or you know bullshit like that. Like because ex Muslims are supposed to exist to sort of confirm this viewpoint, right? That is the sole purpose of an ex-Muslim's existence, it seems, not to battle the right-wing movements wherever they may crop up, whether it's inside Islam or not inside Islam. They want me to totally shut up about my criticisms of, you know, disturbingly right-wing and far-right pandering atheists. And I don't think that you're going to. (laughs) No, No, that's actually why I got myself out of religion, because I don't I don't shut up that easily. So I, we were talking a little bit about, you know, the term ex-Muslim and, you know, I touched a little bit on the term self-hating Jew there, which I really hate. And then you kind of touched on on Rebel Media. Um, I, I, I want to talk about Rebel Media a little bit. I mean, they, they platform some extremely anti-Muslim viewpoints, straight up white supremacists and, and like uh, neo, neo-Nazis, especially if you look back to like 2016 before these people were as widely known. And they've really pushed this anti-Muslim narrative in Canada that uh, all Muslims that uh, you know are moderates are actually trying to take over and impo- uh, using Takia and impose Sharia law. And, and a lot of these narratives uh, in Canada and worldwide, I mean, rebels gotten to be a big thing, are, are pushed by mm-hmm. pushed by rebel media. They I mean, haven't had a good time lately. But we can no, get they to haven't. that. They lost. Uh, they lost a number of of their best, well, quote unquote, best um, <laughs> people. Their their best media figures following Charlottesville when it was the Canadian backlash to Charlottesville was finally people like understanding and labeling um, rebel media as alt-right and then disavowing it. And then they lost a lot of people kind of in the aftermath of that. Um, But rebel media is quick to, and this is where it comes back to the, when I was talking about the self-hating Jew comment, rebel media is quick to actually um, say that they, it's a term used by the head of rebel media, by Ezra Levant. Self-hating Jew is? Yes. He has called his critics self-hating Jews. He says he is a Jew. You cannot call him a Nazi. And any Jew that is a critic of him or whatnot is a self-hating Jew. He's, ah, that's he's used called, by many in in the scene that I follow, too. Well, they, they don't say self-hating Jew, but they use their Jewish background as a shield from being called alt-right or alt-light, just like Milo Yiannopoulos does. Yeah, of course. I mean, he might be like, he says, you know, he's gay, but he's like anti-LGBTQ, yeah, yeah. Anti, <laughs> anti-feminist, etc. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. Uh, and we see the same thing kind of with um, Ezra will always say, like, you know, you can't call me a Nazi or, or whatever because I'm Jewish. And then he'll call his critics, you know, self-hating Jews, quote, vestigially Jewish, quote, as Jewish as a ham sandwich, etc. And then he will also say that the anti-fascist and anti-racist demonstrators that will, like, show up at an event and, like, blow horns and whistles or whatever, he'll compare them to Mussolini's brown shirts that literally pulled, like, communists and socialists and anti-fascists out of their beds and beat the shit out of them and told them to get out of town when Mussolini's fascist regime was rising. So he'll call anti-fascists, like, you know, fascist brown shirts. Never mind the fact that, like, in the post-war period, the anti-fascist movement was really fed a lot by... 
by Jews and by Jewishness and by saying, like, never again to fascism that, that targeted Jews and whatever. There's a long Jewish history, very proud Jewish history in anti-fascism. So, like, even to compare, like, anti-fascist to 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 fascist brown shirts and stuff like that is is ridiculous. Like, anti-fascism has its roots in mm. in, in in the post-war period in, in Jewish organizing. Yeah. That's something that just bugs me a little bit. And then, of course, the rebel media will give a platform to Faith Goldie, who went on to say that, uh, you know, the alt-right manifesto that was posted just for Charlottesville, which dealt with the JQ or Jewish question, mm-hmm. which for white supremacists and white nationalists basically means do Jews count as white people? Yeah, yeah. And, and she was saying that that platform was well thought out. She referred to, like, the JQ several times, just as the JQ. So, like, if you knew, you knew what she was talking about. If you didn't, you didn't know what she was talking about. And she said some worse things about Jews, like, just flat out as well. It's oh, funny yeah. that she tried to like distance herself when when David Duke retweeted Faith Goldie. She was like, "Fuck off!" or "Don't do that!" or like, yeah. "Why?" I love I, I love it. I love it when far right people have to say like when when the neo Nazis and stuff like that really love what they're saying and are just like, "That's great! I'm going to retweet that or whatever." They have to be like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! I don't like Nazis. I just say a ton of things that they really <laughs> like, but I don't like them back." It's like you know, it's one sided here. But I don't understand why she doesn't. Like, if you if you are entertaining the JQ and think, you know, Jewish people are whatever, I forget what her words were, but I remember them being very disgusting. You're going on the Daily Stormer. Why don't you like David Duke? Is it just like he's bad PR or? I, I couldn't tell you what's inside Faith Goldie or any of these people's heads because, frankly, they confuse me. And I think it would be a very scary and twisted place to visit for a day. Um, Faith Goldie is one of like the Deus Volters, which is a Latin term for God wills it. And it refers to like this group of, uh, of like reform or boarding in Christians or whatever. I can't remember exactly the dom- denomination or what they call themselves, but basically, um, they support, uh, Israel in the Middle East. And they, uh, and some of them think that, uh, if they manage to get all of the Arabs or, or all of the, you know, the, the people who practice Islam, out of uh, Jerusalem and surrounding areas that it'll bring around the next uh, thing of Jesus Christ. So it's, it's, it's weird. It's, it's like a cult. Wow. And, and, and Richard Spencer often talks about how Israel is a great example for an ethno state or whatever, when it's not, not comparable at all, but he likes to throw that in saying, well, you know, well, Jews have their land. Well, why can't we just have the same thing for whites? Well, that's that's what I love. Uh, it, not like love, but, you know, like this, this is what I, I find so weird about like white nationalism. Like we've been using this as a more benign term to describe the groups because that's how they describe themselves. But here's some important questions to ask a white nationalist. And, and very quickly, you'll see that most white nationalists are white supremacists. So here's this series of questions he asked them. OK, you win. Uh, and uh, you, you, you say that there is, you know, a, a white genocide going on. White birth rates are falling. We're taking in a bunch of immigrants from places that aren't white, et cetera. So, like, what do you do? And you ask them, like, their policy solutions to create their white ethno state. Very frequently, you'll get answers like, you know, ending immigration. Okay, that's great. But, like, white birth rates are still negative. Um, so, I mean, white people are eventually still going to disappear or whatever. Uh, so what then? And, then? and then pretty quickly, they get into policies that would, like, uh, try to improve white birth rates or or diminish birth rates of other peoples or whatever. <laughs> and then if you talk about like how, you know, how slow that would take or whatever, et cetera, et cetera, like pretty soon they'll get into like deportation and stuff like that. And, and by the time that they get into talking about like deporting groups of people in order to create their white ethno state, 
that's when I'm fine just calling them white supremacists. And, yeah. and frequently, a lot of them will get to that point. Yeah, well, you know, the problem that I have is in this uh, atheist scene, there's so much uh, alt-right overlap that there's been this sort of backwards political correctness where you're not allowed to say someone's a white supremacist or you're a regressive leftist or you're not allowed to say someone's a racist uh, or you're regressive, you know? So you have to, like, walk on eggshells and tiptoe around the words no matter what they... no matter how much ethnostate they talk about. Like, Lauren Southern. Do you know Lauren Southern? Oh, very well, yeah. Yeah, so she was on Dave Rubin's horrible show where he's basically a propagandist for all these people and sanitizes them. And she was like, yeah, you know, the left can't get anyone, anything right. Like, they even mischaracterize Richard Spencer. They call him a white supremacist. He's not a white supremacist. He's just a white nationalist. Yeah, so the Venn diagram of white supremacist and white nationalist is basically a solid circle. There might be like, like, there might be like a, a hair's breadth of difference between the, the two circles in the Venn diagram of white supremacist and uh, and white nationalist. Yeah, I mean, if you play out white nationalism, it's really like the superiority of whites and the pri- like giving them priority and fighting for for them to have a land, right? Yeah, exactly. Even if they try to phrase it in, in cultural terms, like protecting their European heritage or whatever. Yeah. When you when you talk to them about but but policies they propose, they are racist and discriminatory policies. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and at that point, yeah, you're just you're just a white supremacist. Right. What's what's the distinction? Yeah, there's no distinction. Like, and if I tried, like, if someone like me tried to do that with like Islamists, right? People would lose their minds. He's not an Islamist. He's just a caliphatist, or come up with weird terms like that to make these slight unnecessary distinctions to make them sound slightly better. Yeah, like the alt right is starting to call itself. Uh, in Europe, it has already been doing this. I'm starting to see a little bit of it in Canada as well. Now they're calling themselves uh, identitarians because they don't shy away from yeah, identitarians. Yeah, yeah. No, this is just another like whitewashing of of alt right, which is just another whitewashing of white nationalism slash white supremacy. Supremacy. Yeah, exactly. So weird, weird times we're living in, where respectable YouTubers and professors are playing into this you know jordan peterson and gad sad i don't know how familiar you are with these people but they are like you know jordan peterson teaches at u of t and gad sad at concordia i believe if you just pay attention to what they're saying jordan peterson actually went on a nazi podcast i don't know if you know tara mccarthy but she's like open, open. Her entire Twitter timeline is like filled with white genocide and, you know, make more white babies. And, oh, jeez. Okay. Uh, she's done a DNA test on YouTube to prove Who how she's white she's, she is. Oh, my God. <laughs> and she's also advocated violence on YouTube. So she said, you know, we'll start by incentivizing deportation and then... You know, the people that refuse to leave, we can put a gun to their heads. We can kill them. Yeah, that just sounds like Nazism with, like, an extra half step. Yeah. <laughs> I've spoken to, like, uh, one group that is, like, trying to get the alt-right a little bit more organized in, in Toronto and in Canada. Uh, and they revealed to me that, uh, that you know, some of the sources of, of people who are, like, coming to them for, like, membership or whatever are coming out of this, like, campus culture, free speech, debate 
um, and something like from U of T that kind of got started and radicalized out of uh, kind of Jordan Peterson rallies and, and talks and stuff like that. And then, of course, Jordan. So you're, you're telling me that he he's appeared on like a, a straight up white supremacist uh, podcast, YouTube show, something like that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, but he was characterized in a news story as alt right, and and then you know he wrote a very harsh letter. Yes. He might have tried to sue them, and they and he basically forced them to to redefine him as a uh, British classical British, liberal. Yes, exactly. Um, so yeah, it, it bugs me sometimes when when the media is, is quick to apply the labels that people want them to apply. That's what without, they did with without Dave doing Rubin. the research. Without doing the research, I mean, if you want to know what somebody truly believes. Uh, in, in these movements, when they're not always, you know, forthright with you, you, look at them online. It is not that difficult. A lot of them have public videos. A lot of them have, like, you know, public social media accounts, and they'll say totally different things when they think that uh, that they're alone or only communicating with their audience. So, if you want to describe somebody accurately, do the research on social media, and it becomes pretty clear what people's uh, where they stand. Exactly. So, so Dave Rubin is is this kind of guy as well where he's had multiple articles written about him and he's always having to threaten them uh, with a lawsuit. And he's like this big free speech guy, right? Oh, of course. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> you are free to say whatever speech I agree with. Exactly. It's, it's, it's astounding. And they're given so much legitimacy. They're having rave reviews and proper media outlets. And he's making what, like... I don't know. Last time I checked, something thirty thousand on Patreon. There's just such great reward in being this kind of person. Wait, Peterson, thirty thousand a month? A month? Yeah. P- Peterson makes sixty thousand a month. I should put down this whole honest reporting thing and just be a cunt. <laughs> right. Great. Me too. You know. <laughs> Me too. I have such a good opportunity to just bash Islam each week on my podcast and I miss out on that and miss out on all the big bucks that I could be making by confirming people's, uh, you know, by legitimizing people's bigotry or whatever. Yep. Well, we talked about the free speech movement. It's, it's usually very hypocritical. I got a couple of great examples of that. I mean, in Canada, rebel media, uh, headed by Ezra Levant, who we just talked about, yeah, uh, calls himself like the, the commander of rebel media, the champion of free speech. And, and yet he'll, he'll call, uh, his his Jewish journalist critics, you know, as Jewish as a ham sandwich, he he banned me personally and Candleland as an outlet from from his events. Uh, even after other journalists stood up for for rebel media attending like uh, parliaments and a UN thing, right? We like the rest of the media community had their back, but they were banning media from their events. Uh, and and they often sue people that are critical. I mean, one person had the audacity to look into a rebel fundraising campaign following uh, a series of devastating forest fires. Mm-hmm. Uh, near McMurray and question where the money was going uh, and uh, did did a bit of investigation of that. And uh, then Ezra tried to sue him. I understand that Ezra is being sued back with a slap suit. He's probably going to lose from what I understand where it is right now and lose a bunch of money. But uh, like, again, like he's going to face a slap suit for, you know, vexatious litigation to silence his critics. Yeah. And, you know, uh, there there's this Dave Rubin guy that I was telling you about. There's, um, you know, there was a Muslim reformer I've, you know, respected a lot. Uh, imagine the was, but he did this lawsuit suing the SPLC for characterizing him as an anti-Muslim extremist, mm-hmm. which is very wrong. And I'm 100% with him on how SPLC characterized him. But this is their opinion 
of him, right? And he, Majid himself has, you know, he's been upset that Richard Spencer's account was taken down off of Twitter or Milo's. And he stood up for these people and said that, you know, the speech that we don't like is the speech that we should protect. And then Majid has this thing pinned to his, he had this thing, I think he's reworded it now, he had it pinned to his Twitter, talking about how this lawsuit, you know, wants to set a precedent for people who throw around the word racist and Nazi. And Now, now tell me, that's not going to chill free speech? Uh, I mean, that sounds like the argument of like what I call free speech absolutists, where... Um they really have a, and maybe correctly, like I'm not actually all that terribly critical of, of free speech absolutists, but they believe in free speech, uh, irrespective of the consequences sure, of yeah. that speech. If it's consistent. Yeah. But, and there's, they'll say things like, you know, we're protecting, you know, the right today because we see their views being silenced and, you know, we don't want any erosion of, of civil liberties or of free speech because, you know, tomorrow the left will be that marginalized group. It's weird that the free speech community thinks that it's the, it's the right that is being marginalized and having their speech censored both sides. I mean, like, I, don't, I don't like using that term both sides, but both the, both the anti-fascist marginalized communities, racialized people, et cetera, would say that like, look, look at Fox news, look at all the major news outlets, look at the fact that there's a president in the United States that is alt-right. Um, they would say, you know, yeah, this is like we've had the, the least platform now than ever being represented right. in like institutions and in the media and et cetera. And, and, the, and the far extreme right has a whole series of YouTube stars. It has podcasts. It has, you know, books, prominent media personalities that all get way more traction than than the uh, marginalized communities, racialized communities, uh, leftists, et cetera, do. And yet they the, the right claims that that it's their views that are being censored and stuff because what a bunch of university students call and complain that, that that the university shouldn't hold a panel conversation. And and so now that is a justification on balance whose views are being silenced. And so I find it weird that uh, that the free speech community comes down so hard on protecting uh, extreme right wing views and actually agrees that they're the ones being the most silenced because I mean I think any any rational and, and and look at it on balance that's just not true right I mean and say when the president does something like you know forbid certain press outlets from having access to him or thing with the EPA or you know says on Twitter that he wants to put people who burn the flag in jail yeah, where, where, where are their complaints then? They're so silent on that stuff. So silent. And I, I, I sometimes wonder, too, if uh, it's not because the bastion of, like, the free speech argument really does occur in universities. A lot of the free speech organizations, campus groups, et cetera, exist in universities, and a lot of the free speech organizations, et cetera, have strong links to, like, university stuff, et cetera. I wonder if, if it's just that their scope at what they're looking at, what they pay the most attention to is university stuff, where... Yeah, maybe maybe that is actually a place where right wing views aren't aren't very popular and are censored by other students and stuff like mm. that, and they're not actually taking uh, you know a broad enough look at what's actually happening in this entire societal shift. But that's strange, right? When there's people in powerful government positions to not even look at that, like and focus on college kids saying that white people shouldn't sell burritos or some dumb stuff that most liberals would roll their eyes at anyways. I don't have an explanation for it. That was my devil's argument. Maybe the free speech organizations are overlooking. Things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, 
yeah, it's it's strange. I mean, generally, I, I would say I know a great number of, of, of free speech advocates who are also free speech absolutists that I might not entirely agree on on their uh, interpretation of free speech and stuff like that. But they are they are principled people and, and not racist. Yeah. I've also, but I have also seen examples of when uh, alt right type folks have infiltrated these organizations. There's there's a great example of a. Uh, uh, there's a YouTube channel that does uh, only has a small number of episodes, uh, and uh, it, it focuses on you know platforming people with somewhat odious views and having open and honest debate and whatever. Uh, and and they shared with me that when they were filming one episode, they were they were doing an issue on like Omer Catter, uh, and the camera guy who like had originally signed up for them because he was like super pro, pro speech, free speech, etc. He didn't like what they were saying about Omer Catter. He thought it was like too left leaning and like mm-hmm. let him off the hook and stuff like that. And so he refused to give them the tape for a while so that they could put it up. And they, oh, wow. uh, they, they, uh, they cut him loose or fired him or whatever, and eventually they get the tape back. But that's a great example of how like, the free speech stuff is, is getting infiltrated and people are using free speech to really talk about protecting the speech that they like mm-hmm. rather than protecting everybody's speech. Well, and then there's the ACLU, right, who has defended all sorts of people. And they're very consistent, but they once tweeted something in praise of Linda Sarsour or something. And people like Dave Rubin tweeted out, you know, stop sending them money or defund the ACLU. And it's Please. like, are you serious? You're a free speech uh, so, guy? Sorry, free speech advocate said defund the ACLU? Yeah, he said stop giving them money, no more money for them. Some, I forget the exact words, but yeah, and it was tweet retweeted by a lot of... A lot of so-called free speech absolutists. Fair enough. I don't. I don't know too much about uh, this Dave Rubin guy, but uh, he sounds like an idiot. He is a very rich idiot. Yes, it's uh, it's appalling, and and you should you should check him out because <laughs> that's what you need to be ready to combat. There aren't enough people like calling this stuff out because they're not aware. I feel like the atheist scene is like this microcosm of all this icky stuff that eventually comes out into the mainstream like we were aware of you know alex jones the alt-right richard spencer so much before this stuff was being talked about because i think that uh criticism of islam can i guess lead into certain doorways right some of them fine secular liberal some of them disturbing and alt-right yep so, so yeah, so we get to know about these people, and, and it's frustrating that uh, nobody's really covering them, or if they are covering them, then the journalists get bullied by Dave Rubin saying, you know, don't you dare call me that, you know? Someone had written something like he profits off the alt-right, and he demonstrably does. Like, there's just no question about it. That's what his show is based on, promoting these people and sanitizing their views and making them seem like normal people. Yep, but... I- they kind of exist in the litigious United States. And I imagine that a lot of their critics don't have the, uh, you know, the financial backing to, to deal even with frivolous lawsuits. Yeah. I mean, but they are from like large publications. Oh, like so even large media companies are kind of getting slapped around by them. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he'll send yeah. like so many tweets and so many followers after them. And listen, like I got a lot of criticism of the media as well, but I, I really hate, uh, you know, spineless papers and spineless journalism. The best stories uh, I've been told by by several senior journalists that I respect, you know, the best stories are the one where everybody has their sphincter shut, like real <laughs> clenched, like real tight as it goes to print, you know, because they know everything's bulletproof. But, you know, you know, there's a good chance the person's going to hate it enough to sue them anyways. Yeah, I am extremely, extremely careful about how I characterize it. But as soon as somebody 
in their own words, as shared views, which uh, are, are best characterized like white supremacists or something, I'm not going to call them less than that, even if they describe themselves as less than that. If I have examples of them in their own words doing Good whatever, then then I'm gonna then I'm gonna call them and I'm gonna cite their stuff. And you know, sooner or later, I'm sure I'm gonna catch a lawsuit for doing this. Uh, and you know, having never faced a lawsuit before, I say bring it on. Maybe I'll have a different opinion of that after the first one look what you do in that situation is that you just do like a side project uh where you bash the left and oh uh, raise money (laughs) raise money (laughs) and then you can fund the the legal stuff for your other lawsuit luckily slap suits have just been like uh very much opened up in canada so any kind of vexatious um kind of stuff like what's being used against ezra right now uh so we have a bit more protection about that here than uh, than they do in the states. Mm-hmm. So so just uh, to finish things off earlier, you touched on going to M one o three demonstrations. If you could just talk about what that is and how it's been used in. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I will characterize M one o three as a clusterfuck. <laughs> so what happened um, was. Uh, and this isn't going to be, you know, this is a quick and be- best understanding I have of it. So M103 was a motion uh, which condemned forms of uh, Islamophobia uh, and basically asked the government to, like, you know, figure out ways how to combat Islamophobia, just like the government has a mandate to, co- to you know, uh, figure out ways to deal with other forms of, of racism and whatnot. Very similar to motions that have been uh, passed uh, previously, like um, like motions condemning anti-Semitism, et cetera. So what's so, the purpose, though? I understand it has no impact on the law or freedom of speech. It has two purposes. So first, uh, it sends a signal to the to the community that the government has their back. It's a it's mm. like a it's both a if you want to be cynical, a vote getting thing, and if you want to be less cynical, uh, an act of goodwill. Mm-hmm. The second thing would be uh, I understand from uh, some people I've spoken with that have a better understanding of how the internal workings of the federal government work. Um, it kind of unshackles uh, bureaucrats and stuff to just kind of get the wheels turning on, you know, including Islamophobia as a form of racism and talking about how to, uh, you know, confront it with with policy and et cetera, like all kind of like internal bureaucratic working stuff. So. It was put forward by uh, MP Ikra Khalid of the of the Liberal Party, mm-hmm. uh, and it used the word though Islamophobia. Yeah, I'm not uh, a fan M- of the word. I'm not either. What everybody understood it to meant was like you know anti-Muslim bigotry, but they used the word Islamophobia, and that that became a problem because that became something that uh, the conservatives and other critics latched onto to say you're you're criminalizing. Not true, but you're you're criminalizing yeah. the. Uh, uh, criticism of, of a religion. Mm-hmm. So rather, and I, I understand there's a ton of difficulties in how this all plays out, but they didn't change the text of that to just read anti-Muslim bigotry or something. At that point, uh, it would have been difficult to do procedurally. Also, kind of hearts were hardened on this. It was a do or die motion thing. Uh, and it, it, it passed. But through that entire process, to to put it in context, this wasn't long after the election of Donald Trump, which gave a lot of like uh, anger and energy to the Canadian anti-Muslim movement that that really hadn't come up physically anywhere yet, though. They weren't physically organizing. They weren't taking up public space. They existed online. Some of like online groups started up, et cetera. Lots, lots of anger and, and, and racism in the online Canadian sphere following the election of President Trump. Then this M103 debate happened. 
So M103 became a, a lightning rod and people started physically organizing around it. Mm. Whether that would have happened without M103, I don't know. But what I can say is that M103 became a lightning rod. And it, it was when the movement went from largely being an online anti-Muslim alt-right-ish kind of movement to taking physical form when they started coming out to physically demonstrate against M103. So the responsibility... Mm. Like there is some responsibility uh, for what happened on like the entire political system, especially on media outlets like Rebel Media and et cetera, which which really flogged this motion and kind of got the organizing like kind of started when they held a big anti M103 rally in in February. That really kickstarted a lot of this in a big way. Mm -hmm. Uh, But also the political parties really dropped the ball here. I mean, unintentionally, uh, let's give them the benefit of the doubt, you know, unintentionally they really breathe life into this anti-Muslim movement, trying to do the exact opposite. Yeah, to and that's what often, community. it often happens that way. And that is, you know, so much the core of my frustration because a lot of leftists do end up doing this by trying to like shield the niqab from any criticism by overcompensating and saying that it's a feminist symbol of empowerment or whatever else. And they just breathe life into these anti-Muslims because it's so clearly wrong what they're saying, even if it's out of good intent. Yeah, and, and like all of their criticisms, when they actually do base their criticisms on fact or anti-Islam stuff, which is rolled into the whole anti-Muslim racism thing. But when they do base their criticisms on fact, like there are there are some things that they are uh, they are rightly critical of of the uh, uh, you know the subjugation of women mm-hmm. uh, when there is conservative conservative interpretations of Islam uh, and you know the 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 anti-LGBTQ attitudes of conservative interpretations of Islam as well are, are valid criticisms that the, the alt-right is using, but mm-hmm. they're not doing it in a, a genuine positive way. They're doing it uh, as a justification for bigotry based on the color yeah. of somebody's skin. Yeah. So, I mean, it, like, I understand that they might have meant Islamophobia as anti-Muslim bigotry, but they really have to, they really have to get hip to what, what their, what their opponent's tactics are. And they really, have to stop using words like Islamophobia or vague, you know, protections for Islam because that doesn't help, especially Muslims. Um, yeah, and perhaps the most negative consequence to come out of that was uh, the Conservative Party here in Canada in opposing M103 was using the same language as like, uh, you know, these extreme anti-Muslim groups, uh, you know, who got the language from who, who knows, whatever. They're using mm-hmm. the same language. Uh, and it really made the anti-Muslim uh, groups and that movement feel like the conservative party has their back. Yeah, that's so, definitely not good. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's bad for the conservatives because, well, first of all, it's, it's bad for them to do. They should be a bit more cognizant of what they're doing. And if, and if they're intentionally dog whistling, well, that's just small e evil. Mm. Uh, and if they're doing it unintentionally, well, you know, smarten up and mm-hmm. explicitly disavow these anti-Muslim groups, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it has the potential to, to hurt them going into the next election as well. So I'm hoping that they'll smarten up, disavow these groups, and these groups will realize that, you know, none – at that point, the groups have realized that, you know, none of the Canadian political parties actually like us. Yeah, yeah, that would be good. I mean, and on the other side of this, like, people do get very nitpicky. So, like, I myself, I, I dislike – Islam. I don't want to shield it from uh, criticism. I'm a critic of it myself. And I really dislike the term Islamophobia, but 
But when I see someone using it applied to actual anti-Muslim bigotry, I'm not going to like be a roadblock and say like, but Islamophobia is a bad word and you're protecting Islam from criticism because I know that they're using it to mean anti-Muslim bigotry. In the same way, this whole Islam is not a race thing has also been used like technically, yes, Islam is not a race and It's very frustrating when criticism of Islam on its face is always taken as racist. So, like, I've had people call me racist for, um, you know, bringing up pro-LGBT discussions and being critical of Muslim communities being homophobic. So they've called me racist for that. And, you know, in that case, maybe a couple of years ago, I'd be like, but Islam isn't a race, you know? Like, there are white Muslims, there are black Muslims, there are brown Muslims, there are Asian Muslims. But now that whole Islam is not a race has become an alt-right talking point. Basically, we can say whatever we want even about Muslims, because Islam is not a race, and so it's not racist. Of course, you can racialize Muslims and treat them as a racial group and demonize them as a whole. Yeah, so Muslims are are, are not a race. Islam is not a race, that whole argument. That, yeah, okay. I've seen anti-Muslim groups uh, stand side by side, actually, with, with, with Sikhs who are anti-Muslim. Yeah. And they were accidentally targeting the people who were their allies at their rally because they saw a brown oh. person and thought they were Muslims. So this whole like <sighs> Islam is not a race, Muslims is not a race thing, that argument goes out the window when you start targeting random brown people for being Muslim. Yes, exactly. And, you know, people in the States have been shot. Hindus have been shot. Sikhs have been killed. Yeah, the first guy after 9-11 that, that was killed as like a, a like a response was a Sikh guy, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. So why, I don't understand why you would be a brown guy and support these types of movements, but yeah, there are, there are those. Yeah. A lot of the, um, the more benign forms, the, the alt light or the, the, the ones that really try stringently to, to say they're white nationalists and not racist and whatever, they have a more diverse membership than, than you would expect. It's kind of surprising actually. Yeah. Yeah. They'll use that as examples to say that they're not racist or whatever. And, And the entire paradigm just, it, it baffles me. Yeah, it's become so messed up how how we talked about, uh, you know, there's alt-right Muslims who are anti-Semitic, and so they they ally with the alt-right for that, and then there's, like, Jews who are anti-Muslim, so they ally with the alt-right for that. And you look at both of the, those groups and think, well, what kind of idiots are you? Don't you know you're next? Like, you're the next target. Yeah, I think, I think in the wake of Charlottesville, when the anti-Semitism became so apparent— and it's also becoming apparent in the anti-Muslim movement here in Canada as well. Um, I think that uh, you're going to see a lot less like Jewish support for the alt-right following that. I hope I mean, so. I, I would certainly hope so. I mean, it's it's not something that can be swept under the rug or attributed to like a, a small subset or anything anymore, right? When like, when an alt-right manifesto discusses the JQ or Jewish question, like it's an issue mm-hmm. in the alt-right community, are, are Jews white or not? Yeah, I can't think that's a very welcoming place for, for Jewish folks. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, there's, like, Muslim alt-riders, so yeah, anything's I, possible. 
Yeah, that's like, I, I mean, I can understand the transgressive part of that, right? They want to rebel, they want to transgress, they, you know, they want to feel part of like a, a subculture or whatever. But if, I mean, I bet you if they physically showed up in like Charlottesville or, or, or Berkeley or wherever, they would be misidentified as being with the other side. Right. Probably a lot it of them. Could and, be. And, and it would be, I don't think it would be very safe for them to actually go to like alt-right rallies and stuff being in the midst of that. Yeah. But I mean, I guess if they're people from the Middle East and they don't have any idea what anti-Muslim bigotry is like. So when I talk to like my friends in Pakistan, atheists in Pakistan, their criticisms of Islam are like much harsher and border on things that would be considered anti-Muslim over here. But in that context, it's when there's absolutely zero fear of anti-Muslim bigotry or people co-opting, then it, it sort of seems more understandable because you're punching up, if you understand what I mean. Yeah. So, yeah. But when the internet brings everyone together, then all context of climate and local climate is lost and it's bad. Yeah, and people here are radicalized by the more extreme language coming in from elsewhere. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting that you make that point because it's like the anti-Muslim sentiment as well that's being imported, that's radicalizing people. Whereas the alt-right over here are worried about, you know, Sharia being imported that would be the sole radicalizer. Yeah, even the alt-right, like in Canada, United States, will have examples of um, uh, elsewhere in the world, you know, uh, Muslims being extremely like anti-Semitic, etc., and then point to those as examples of how Muslims feel about Jews and kind of import that to their own country where it's far more extreme. You're going to hear way more extreme rhetoric in other places in the world, mm-hmm. never to ex- never to excuse any any forms of racism or whatever. But they're they're going to import these incredibly extreme examples and say like, you know, this is all Muslims. I, I don't know enough about the American example, but in Canada, when it comes to the the anti-Muslim movement, we've sorry to clarify, we have a bit more of an anti-Muslim movement here with like some groups and individuals that would identify as alt-right or organize under an alt-right banner on the fringes. But primarily here, it's an anti-Muslim movement. Not a lot of them would identify or even use the term alt-right. Mm. But I mean, it, it's similar stuff. It's white nationalism. Mm-hmm. But uh, so you'll see that like some of the groups uh, are anti-Semitic and stuff like in private or like individual members or, or people in a leadership position, some of these anti-Muslim groups, but they don't publicize it on their Facebook pages. They'll talk about not being racist and stuff like that. And I, I think that's large because they don't want to like alienate their Jewish allies. Mm. I don't know if a similar thing is happening in the United States where they kind of kept the anti-Semitism maybe a little bit on the down low, at least compared to like otherwise what they'd be doing. And, and now post Charlottesville, it's like out in the open. And yeah. I think that's happened a lot. Like, well, I mean, places like rebel and stuff didn't really keep it on the down low when Gavin posted that. Well, I guess he had the plausible deniability of saying it was a joke, but what was it? 10 things I hate about Jews. Yeah. Video. Yeah. So they use a lot of that. LOL. It's a joke kind of stuff to deny but for a moment let's, let's put aside his satire thing that he claimed there's there's like other places where he is like you know repeated talking points of how like um uh the jews committed more genocide than the nazis and uh you know stalin and stuff like that which are all like um recognized like anti-semitic mm. talking points just and and he also repeats like justifications on how 
well, he goes into other things that that people actually recognized as like rhetoric that were used uh, as justifications for like anti-Semitism elsewhere and stuff like that. So there, it wasn't just the satire. There were like other links of things when he was clearly like not being satirical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah, are very yeah. problematic, but like on their face, it might not be enough to you know lambast him for because you have to explain a lot of the context of why it's so bad. Mm. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it wasn't just that. Well, yeah, so it's just like uh, kind of like how when Milo got caught out for this uh, pro-child abuse stance that he had where he went to par- Hollywood parties and he saw people having sex with very, 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 very young boys. And, you know, he was saying this as if it was some cool, edgy party and he did nothing about it. And uh, when caught when caught saying that milo was all like oh but no i meant you know young boys as in 19 year olds are called young boys in the gay scene and he tried to you know bullshit his way out of it but if you look at the other things he said he's talked about you know how age of consent is a is a regressive concept and he's talking about like boys as young as 13 or 15 like specific like specific numbers when you put it all together it you looks know real you, bad. Yeah. 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 So, that's kind of like, that's kind of like the work that people have to do when they, when they look at these folks. Cause it, I mean, there is a real effort to, to try to hide, you know, your true motivations. Yeah. Like if you, if you look at like the chans and some of the places where the alt-right have their own um, conversations, they, I mean, they'll talk openly. Well, not like semi openly about like, you know, disinformation campaigns about, uh, rebranding about you know new tactics to not look so excru- so extreme you know and also them distancing themselves from the more extreme uh, factions right people think that oh because this one person has called out the alt right uh, now they're all of a sudden great and not bigoted but I mean you know Faith Goldie tries to disassociate from David Duke and there's like so many. Uh, varying degrees to this. In Canada, Ezra Levant was just like, yeah, the rebel like uh, isn't alt-right because we're not racist, et cetera, et cetera. So he kind of tried to redefine what the alt-right is, first off. But then he also said that the rebel wasn't alt-right. And everybody rightly smashed him for it. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you're not the alt-right. You just repeat their talking points, put them up, yeah. like, give them a platform. Uh, you have hosts, which are obviously extremely sympathetic to them. Yeah. And, and you are an extremely anti-Muslim, anti-Islam uh, news site. Yeah, sure. You're not all right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So like the guy that I, the, the ex Muslim that I told you about who went on rebel to say Islam doesn't have a place on this planet. He went to some like racist rally and tried to like make a YouTube video where he's talking to like extreme bigoted people and telling them to, I guess, tone down the rhetoric. And, you know, he got so much praise for it because, look, there's this one thing he did that's like, oh, look, he was denouncing the way worse guys. Meanwhile, he's on Rebel saying things like Islam doesn't belong on the planet in a very, very, very anti-Muslim climate. So, I mean, just denouncing someone like way worse doesn't really get you off the hook for doing things like that. Yeah, when somebody says, like, Islam doesn't, uh, shouldn't exist on the planet. How the fuck do you propose to implement that? Like, are you going to say that that Muslims in a given country, whatever, like them practicing their religion is now illegal, or they're going to redefine it as a political ideology instead of a religion or whatever, and now make it illegal? Well, you've just taken away in Canada, like your charter right in America, whatever the equivalent right is. They would um, never own up to that, though. You try to press 
Yeah, wait, what do you propose? You say, you say Islam doesn't have a place in the world. How do you propose to, like, what's your solution? Well, basically, I guess what they would say is, like, you work for making more disbelievers. You don't do this, you know, let them have their faith, or you don't do this, let's work towards reforming Islam and improving Islam, because Islam is itself so bad that you only work towards creating disbelievers. Fight for the truth. Yeah, good luck with that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> good luck. Good luck telling a group of people that like they can't practice their religion. I mean, like, look, when, when religious groups have been persecuted across the world, their religion has been banned. They've been murdering for practicing it, etc. They still hide menorahs and crosses and whatever, yeah. like you know, under a floorboard and, and practice their religion. So, like, what's your solution? In like. You, you know, get to rationally debate them out of it, of course, because... Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, totally. You, you can rationally debate somebody out of, you know, a deeply held personal belief. Yeah, maybe like, I don't know, let's even say a crazy high number, maybe 15 times out of 100. Who knows? Maybe sure. people are super rational. But yeah, yeah, no, no. <laughs> no, exactly. And so then they'll point to those 15 times and see, see, it works, right? Mm, yeah, that's not a good strategy. And all the meanwhile, it's like, let's not alienate the far right, but let's tell these Muslims that their religion does not belong on the planet. And let's say it on a far right media outlet. Yeah, by, by the way, like the, the alt-right and whatever, I, I spoke with uh, with an expert in de-radicalization within the Muslim community here in Canada. He was actually an informant on a, on a terrorism case uh, years back. He does consulting work with like CSIS here. This is not Mobin something, is it? Mobin Sheikh, yeah. Oh, gosh, yeah. He, he, he tells <laughs> me, though, that uh, I, I know he's somewhat of a polarizing figure, but he has a really great point in analysis where he says that, uh, well, first off, the alt-right uh, movement, the white supremacy movements that are happening right now, uh, operate the way they operate online and stuff like that is indistinguishable from ISIS and other terror cells. Mm. Uh, and he also says that it's 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 their it's terrorists like greatest gift. I mean, you have a, a bunch of people being obvious with their hateful views on the street. Yeah, that is going to radicalize Muslims and other uh, and other folks at home. Of at, course, yeah. When when they have a recruitment tool like to point at and say, look at that, they hate us, so join us. And it's funny that the people who refuse to acknowledge that say, oh, well, look at your high opinion of Muslims. They're so easily radicalized. They're the ones that keep saying, well, don't call people Nazis because they'll be radicalized by simple use of the word. Oh, well, I, I do want to talk about that. I, I think that uh, I don't like a very liberal use of the word Nazi. Of course not. Me neither. But when it comes to Richard Spencer, I'm going to use oh, it. Oh, yeah, I know. I'm fine with calling Richard Spencer Nazi. The issue I have with, like, people calling a anybody on the most benign alt-light, which is still not great, but, like, all the way, like, they just call everybody a Nazi. And what oh, I have yeah, yeah. That's, that. that's really bad because it becomes harder to identify the people who are actually extreme. It's kind of like a rallying banner, right? So, like, people who are all the way on the spectrum from the alt-light to the alt-right or just, like, super conservative or, or whatever, right? They'll be like, hey, that guy just called me a Nazi. Yeah. And then, like, the, an alt-right guy will be like, hey, they called me a Nazi, too. Like, I guess we should exactly. band together against those, like, awful Antifa people. Exactly. And then an actual Nazi will come up and be like, fuck, they called me a Nazi, oh, too. yes. And they'll be like, come on on board. Yeah. But like, no, but like that guy's actually a fucking Nazi. Yeah. So they give them, it gives people cover. So like, yeah. like you've heard by now, I'm a very harsh critic of Dave Rubin. And I think he's done a lot to really destroy the, you know, secular atheist movement and 
uh, just bring some really bad people in. People criticize him and call him like a white nationalist or a Nazi. And I've stopped those people and said, like, look, he's not. He does promote those types of people. He has promoted like white genociders and things like that. But if you call him that, then you're no better than like, say, the critics of Islam who call like Linda Sarsour an Islamist or a jihadist. You know what I mean? If you're pre- precise with your criticism, then it'll be more likely taken seriously. But if you go around just calling everyone like a Nazi or a white supremacist, no one's going to hear you. Yep, you have to like look at the etymology of the groups, where they came from, where they take inspiration from, what they say amongst themselves, what they say in social media. Look at the like the Facebook profiles of their leaders, etc. And like that's the only way to correctly identify people. And that's what the media should be doing. Don't ask like how do you identify yourself. Start there, sure. Yes, exactly. But then do your research. Exactly. So then when I talk about this reverse backwards PC is when we have people all the time fighting to not call um, Richard Spencer, a Nazi, or say that the people in Charlottesville should not have been called well, Nazis. The ones holding torches yelling Sieg Heil as they march past the synagogue. Yeah, yes. you can call them Nazis. No, but they say no. Dave Rubin himself says that Nazis do not exist out of 1940s uh, Nazi Germany. Eh. Like, look, I get how watered down the term is, but if somebody's yelling Sieg Heil carrying a torch and marching past a synagogue, y- you can call them a Nazi. Right, right, exactly. So that's my frustration in between both these ends, you know what I mean? Yeah. So on that note, we've had a lovely and uh, diverse, robust discussion. Yes, I've enjoyed this greatly. Yeah, me too. It was a very, it was a very polite conversation. <laughs> I try to keep it polite, even with people who accuse my family of being genocide supporters for no goddamn reason. But you did no. nothing of the sort. No. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, it's been a pleasure, Evan, and uh, hopefully we'll chat again and keep in touch and keep doing what you're doing. And thank you for not being a spineless journalist. Well, thank you very much. Um, yeah, if, if any of your listeners um, want to find me, they can find me uh, at eBalgord on Twitter. Uh, you and I are Twitter friends. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm always happy to answer uh, journalist or researcher questions about the anti-Muslim alt-right white nationalist movements etc in canada awesome so anywhere else you'd like to point the audience to to find some of your work well um uh if you send a if you include a link to the canland podcast i did on the rise of the right it's a little out of date now but it's a great primer on what's happening here in canada oh, but uh, otherwise still, uh, i just listened to it again this morning it's still pretty spot on oh thank you yeah people can follow me uh, on canland or on toronto west or just uh, twitter's probably the best place okay awesome thanks again thanks for having me Thanks for listening to another episode of Polite Conversations. You can support this podcast by sharing the shit out of it, making some noise about it, or contributing via Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash nice mangoes. No Ian mangoes. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at nice mangoes. If you want to make a one-time donation instead of a monthly Patreon one, you can do so via PayPal. NiceMangoes.blog at gmail.com. Remember, no Ian Mangoes. If you've got an interesting story and would potentially like to be a guest, you can email me there too. A special thanks to Dylan Beck for theme music, sound, and production help. <laughs>